Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? The show where I will uncover the stories of domestic abuse survivors. I'm your host, Maya Hoover. Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? My name is Mai Huber. I am the host of What Was Her Name? And today I am here with my guest, um, Tess. And um, yeah, I'm eager to hear your story. And we've been kind of like in communication here and there through Instagram. And I feel like it's a long time coming. So um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for, for being here today. Thank you for having me. No, I feel the same way. I'm looking forward to, you know, chatting with you. Yeah, same. Um, okay, well, let's jump into it. So I guess the first question is, um, how did you guys meet? Um, how did we meet? So we first met when I was about 15. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at a you know, a backyard party, family party of a friend. Mm. Um, I just remember being like so quiet and so shy. I had braces, pimples, like my grandma who had dressed me, you know, she like approved my clothes. Mm. Um, he was older, like super cool. Um, yeah, so that's when we first met yeah what was like I feel like this is always an interesting question and it's something that intrigues me just because you know obviously it's no surprise in this space that every story and woman that comes on and shares her story it ends in abuse and that's heartbreaking in and of itself that this is a podcast for abused women however um, I think it's really beautiful to hear stories and then to see what happens to a woman who has been abused and then how they, you know, their lives transform and who they are. Um, it kind of creates in them, I think, goals and visions that they would have never had otherwise. And it's interesting to me how it starts because I think a lot of times, like at least for me, like when I would think about abuse, um, I always, you know, knew, okay punching domestic abuse like like physical abuse is abuse but I never like aligned with like the woman on like the poster and I think a lot of times people have like kind of a judgment or a perception of like oh well like why didn't like like I don't know how women could just like end up in an abusive relationship but it's like it didn't start there like it doesn't just it doesn't just like start with abuse someone doesn't just come at you and start being toxic and unhealthy usually it's like a slow grow and a process and it's intriguing to me to hear the very beginning of how someone felt and what they witnessed in that person because like you would never have nobody ever thinks that they're going to be in an abusive relationship nobody and you don't think it's you until it is you. And so I was reading a little bit of this just now. And you said that he was older and cool. And he was like Danny Zuko from Grease meets Chad, Michael Murray in a Cinderella story. Um, The way you describe him here, it's like he really, he really seemed like a really unique, almost like different kind of person to you. He was, he was very, um, 
you know, I I'll touch on this later, but like I was from the South and I moved up to New York to uh, live with a grandparent when I was about eight. Um, and obviously there's like big differences between the South and New York. Um, but he was very different from all the guys that I feel like I went to high school with, you know, he used to wear flannels and he kind of like loved that I was from the South. And I really resonate with what you said too, because I feel like before this kind of happening, I definitely was someone who was of the mindset, like, like, why would you stay with a guy like that? Like, why wouldn't you just leave? Right. Like, come on, like, it's so simple. And I always thought that way until I literally was that girl. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, like, I literally remember just waking up and thinking, how did I get here? Like in the physical sense, in the mental sense, like how did I get here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's kind of like, it, yeah, you just wouldn't think that it would be you until it is you. And I think that the prog progression of abuse um, a lot of times goes unnoticed. And <clears throat> I think part of like part of awareness and part of bringing awareness, even through this podcast to other people who are listening is like, you know, that's why it is so important to know what to look out for in behaviors and things, because like hindsight 2020, like you look back and you see little things probably where, you know, I mean, we're about to hear your story, but you hear things or you remember things that happened. And you're like, huh? yeah, I didn't really see that. Or yeah, I kind of dismissed that. Or well, there was that one time I had that feeling in, my, in the pit of my stomach, but I just ignored it because I thought, you know, oh, I'm just, you know, overthinking it or I'm just having anxiety. And it's like, then you kind of start to see those things. And I think like if we were more true to ourselves and our intuition and gave our intuition the benefit of the doubt more, I think that maybe some of us would have maybe been able to, been able to like, you know, see it before it happened, but you don't know what you, what you know until you know it, you know, so of course. And I feel like through journaling and therapy and even like, obviously this is the first time I'm really sharing this openly, I guess, you know, in not a therapy session or not a journal, but even just do through doing those things as I've gone back and like looked at what led to that, you're definitely a hundred percent, right? Like looking back, there were these like little things that happened where I think if other people heard them, they'd be like, wow, that's really weird. Right. But in the moment, it just, it was like blocks getting stacked. It just mm -hmm. like, wasn't, it didn't seem like enough to leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I very much um resonate with that. <clears throat> How long was the relationship approximately? It was six, about six years. Okay. Wow. So a good chunk of time. Were you guys married? We were not married. We were engaged. Okay. Can you describe how the relationship was uh, in the very beginning? Like, I know we know that he seemed really cool, um, but what was it like? How was he? Who was he? All the things. So that was like when we had originally met, I was about 15, mm -hmm. but we did not actually start dating until I was about 20. Um, okay. I had, yeah, I guess like I had graduated, well, obviously I graduated high school. So 
um, and he was about a year older than me. Mm -hmm. So when we first entered the relationship, he was away. He had gone away to college. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just sort of started, like I went up to where he was with friends and visited for the weekend and, um, it just sort of kicked off from there. And I would say it, it was something that came on very heavy, like within a couple of weeks, he was saying, you know, I don't want you seeing other people. I want to be together. Um, and I remember having reservations about being in like a long distance situation. Like I definitely said to him, um, maybe we should wait to be like exclusive or really do this until you come home. Right. Because you're obviously like away at a party school. You know, I'm at home going to college, working three jobs. You know, we're living very different lifestyles. Like, and, you know, he would say, no, like, I just know how I feel about you. I felt this way for a long time. Uh, I don't want to be with anybody else. I only want to be with you. Very like soulmate type. Hmm. Um, situ- like vibe. Yeah. Like he made you feel kind of like. Like the first time I felt this way, like mm-hmm. thing, like I've never felt this way about a girl, you know, those kind of things. Right. <clears throat> Which makes you feel special naturally. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so did you feel also like in that time, like he was your soulmate as well? I did. I mean, I remember meeting him when I was 15. I was definitely, you know, crushing on him. I I definitely, like, when I was younger, I just remember thinking, like, there's no way he'd be interested in me. Mm. Um, And, yeah, all those years later, like, when we were, obviously, when he's telling me these things, I I felt like, yeah, oh, my gosh, I've, you know, felt this way about you, too. Mm. Yeah. And so we entered the relationship, I would say, within a month of that initial visit. Okay. So how long did that last, like that period before you realized that something was wrong? Well, we were dating for about a year and a half when I became pregnant. Okay. Um, He was still away at school. Mm -hmm. I remember just like I was in shock. I was 21. Um, I had called like to tell him that I was pregnant and I just remember him announcing it to the bar and like that he's going to be a dad and everyone like yelling and chanting and before he even gave me a response on the phone. Mm. And, you know, at that point it was still like, it, it was just like, I was just in such shock. I was still living at home with my grandma. I hadn't told anybody else. Um, so yeah. Hmm. When did you first notice that something was wrong? Um, well, I guess, so when I was about maybe 10 weeks pregnant, Mm -hmm. I had found out, um, that he had cheated on me at some point between when we started dating and, you know, when I found out I was pregnant. Mm. 
Mm. And then once I found this out, you know, I kind of did a little like digging around trying to figure out what happened. And it basically came out that, you know, he pretty much said, like, I wanted to make sure that you were exclusive with me. But like, I really wasn't exclusive with you throughout that time. And he at some point, he admitted to having sex with more than 30 girls. While you guys were together? Yeah. At at one period, he said he didn't rumble, I would say like a few weeks after that, uh, where he kind of reiterated like the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically said, you know, he felt like he had a drinking problem and that like he drinks and can't control himself. And I feel like a lot of these things were just excuses um, as to like why he did the things he did and, and the amount of lies he put into it. Um. But um, he did, once he came home, we, you know, I decided to basically just forgive him without getting an apology. I never really got the whole story. I never really got everything that truly happened, but I just kind of knew, you know, I'm pregnant. I'm going to just choose to forgive. That was when he was away. He's saying he wants this now. He's here now. and um. I wound up having my son about seven weeks early Mm -hmm. and just following that we got an apartment together. Like when I came home from the hospital, we had rented this like little apartment together. Mm. Um, And yeah, the apartment didn't have a kitchen. Mm -hmm. It was just like these two little rooms. We had a hot plate. Um, he didn't have a car Mm. so I feel like initially I came home from the hospital with this baby and he um did get a job and then he needed to take my car so he would be gone every day from whatever it was you know eight to four eight to five something like that and I would be in this little space all day with no internet so service no car wow um I was used to being very financially independent. Now I had no money. Um, And like in hindsight, even now, just pointing all this out, I definitely feel like that's where the dynamic totally changed. Right. But um, because you were essentially like you went from being independent to being dependent on somebody and not having any sort of real like ground or footing for yourself to have something for yourself. You were just, were you just, you were staying at home with your son and he was, was he the one like kind of providing and bringing an income then? Well, he was the one working, although he did still expect me to help with the bills and I was digging into savings. I, um I would do any like anything I could do to like make money. I remember I ran into someone and they had opened up a little someone I had known previously. They had opened up like a restaurant. They offered me a job hostessing on Friday nights. I think I was like three months postpartum and I started picking up Friday and Saturday nights. I would work like seven PM to two AM or something like that. Oh, wow. Um Yeah. And I and it was like an argument for him to watch our son during that time. <laughs> yeah. So 
I, I actually think eventually I stopped. I think it was short lived because he really didn't want to do it. But then I was still expected to pay for like groceries and half the rent. And it, in hindsight, like I just, I just don't, I don't, I don't know how I still like, don't know how I got there. Mm -hmm. I think like <clears throat> many of us who are listening, like I have been in that space where <clears throat> you kind of just like one day it just occurs to you and you look around at your surroundings and you're like, are my best days behind me? Like, did I miss it? <laughs> because this is not what I pictured for my life. Um, <clears throat> but I think like, as you said, you know, I mean, somebody, it, it was a slow grow. It didn't happen overnight. It took, it took time and it took years. And I think also when you have a child, it just makes things so hard. Um, and it was a slow grow. Sorry. Yeah. It was a slow grow, but then also like, I, I feel like for someone who's young too, like I was, I was 21, but anyone that's young, right. If you're, let's say you, I don't care what, job you have and you're making your money and you're getting your nails done or whatever you're doing once you have this baby and you're like now you're the primary caretaker mm -hmm. and they're saying they're going to be the one working I think a lot of people even married people maybe don't have these conversations of like are you going to compensate for you know me not working like are what right kind of like what things you're going to do and when you're younger you're definitely not thinking about having those conversations and I just sort of like remember coming it all went so quick like suddenly he needed my car we didn't have money to pay for wi-fi we, it was like we had this little tiny apartment and I was just so isolated yeah I was still embarrassed too I remember like I didn't want to have anybody over the apartment I was embarrassed that I was without a car um and now I had no money to do anything, like mm. to even go anywhere. And it, it does just happen so quick. Yeah. That part of it. <laughs> I think you make a good point too, like having those conversations prior. Um, because when you're in love, you don't really think about asking somebody, hey, if like we end up getting pregnant, um, you know, and I stay at home, are you you going to like pay for my pay for our bills or like, are you going to like, ex like, what's your expectation when you, when we have a family one day, like we, you don't think about sometimes asking these questions. And I think we kind of just trust at face value, the person that we're dating or in love with. Right. And maybe it, it is because some of us are looking through uh, these like rose filtered glasses or, um, you know, they're portraying something that they're actually not. Um, and then when you end up in, you know, fast forward, you have a child and you are newly postpartum and, you know, then all of a sudden these topics are at the forefront of your lives. And it's like, oh, we didn't even think to like have these conversations. And I sat in a very similar place, like a lot of what you're saying, I just resonate. And I know there's a lot of people listening that are going to be able to resonate as well. And so people who are listening who are maybe not in a relationship 
or who have, who I know there's a lot of people who listen just for advocacy or just to support stories, but not necessarily because they have been abused. I think that's like such a vital question to ask somebody. And I think that's such a good point that you bring up because you don't think to ask these questions until you're in it. And then you're in it and you're like, oh shit, like, <laughs> like I should have asked this question and I didn't. And the, the turning of tables, you know, I was, I had had the jobs that I had before that I was working. I had been at each one since I was about 16. Now I was 21. Mm -hmm. I had worked my way up. I worked at a tanning salon where I was scrubbing toilets and cleaning the sweat out of tanning beds. By the time I was 21, I was, I was an executive in their company. Um, and I left that job to get when I, you know, once I was pregnant enough, I also had another full-time job working for like here, they call it the town, but it's like a, essentially like a little government job. And it's, it was very good. Same thing. I'd been there for quite a while Mm. and I had bought my own car and now look at how in a month's time before that he didn't even have a job. Now he was the one with the job. He did not have any experience managing money. Now he didn't have a car. Now he was the one with the car. Mm. And I think also it's like our images just totally changed. Right. So I'm curious, like what you would say to like, or what your view is on this now, if somebody is in a relationship or, you know, has a kid or they're married, like, do you, as far as like being a stay at home mom and like, you know, there's a lot of women who like give up their careers or their jobs and then they end up staying at home. And I think that in in, in and of itself, like if you're with a safe partner and somebody who supports and values you, they're not going to take advantage of that. But I think a fear for me personally is like, I, like if I am ever married again, I'm never going to not have something that I'm pursuing as an, as a career. Um, and I'm not ever going to depend on somebody in that way. And maybe some would look at that and say, well, that's just your trauma talking. No, for me, actually, I'm like, (laughs) the trauma does a lot of talking, (laughs) right? It's not just trauma talking. So I'm curious what you think about that. Do you think, are you, do you think similarly or what's like your view on that? Well, I think since I left the relationship in 2018, I mean, I left, I had nothing. I had zero dollars. I had a diaper bag, two kids under three. And I was, I had given him, you know, I had a great aunt who passed away and gave me, left me some of her retirement. I had given him all of that. Mm. And I drove with these kids to my grandma's house. I slept on a mattress in her basement for 10 months with both of them while I exclusively breastfed. I jumped into nursing school. I worked two jobs from home with both kids on me. And within 10 months, I graduated nursing school. I moved out and got us a little apartment. Just last year, I saved up enough and bought us a house. Mm -hmm. And I feel like To answer your question, when I finally got out of this, I definitely became hyper-focused on financial independence Mm -hmm. because I, I won't be in that situation again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, 
that's brave and fucking courageous of you to <clears throat> just be in the place that you're in now. Um, and I agree with you. I think financial independence is very important. And I think it's important even in a relationship to not depend on that person to just like financially supply for you because I just, I've just seen it go wrong so frequently that I'm like, never again will like I ever depend on someone in that way. Like I was also a stay at home mom and I, it's just so interesting that in intricacies of all of our stories, like I just recorded in another episode for, and like, you know, recording all the guests for this season and <clears throat> just, it's wild because it's like, we all have such different stories, but like textbook abuse but also just like similar intricacies in our stories and like I can just very deeply resonate with like not having a car not having a job um kind of just having my independence stripped from me and then it's like once you yes that was a good way of putting it yeah definitely once you have that stripped of you and then I mean add in the like emotional abuse that you're experiencing, having somebody who is disloyal to you and dishonest to you. I mean, that can't not affect your self-worth and value in some shape or form. And so to think of removing yourself from that situation and rebuilding your life, I mean, that's why I say like, it's fucking courageous because like, it's the fact that you are where you are right now. I know you have that question of like, how the hell did I end up in that situation in the first place? But like, when you think about it, like to be in that place of like, everything is being stripped from me to now, like I have this financial independence and am owning my life and cultivating my, my life again with my child. Like a lot of women don't get to that. They just don't get to that point. That's the sad reality. They don't. It could have been me. I look, it could, I don't, I honestly give it to God and my angels because I literally some days I could barely I don't even know some of it I don't even remember Mm -hmm. how did I make it to class how did I continue breastfeeding how did I pay for xyz all I know is that every day that went by I got a little further Mm -hmm. I kind of want to backtrack for a sec and just ask you how did it manifest in your daily life like Um, For example, you know, depression, anxiety, binge eating, anorexia, like what kind of for you, how is that manifesting in like your mental health in your daily life to be, you know, in that situation? Um, It definitely manifested for me as anxiety. Hmm. Um, I feel like originally just I was living this like total, what felt like a double life. I was with what would have looked like my high school sweetheart we had this perfect baby although we lived in these conditions he bought me this big huge engagement ring um and I did have like I would say I developed pretty severe anxiety which then turned into panic attacks and I do still suffer from this and just with like continued which we didn't even get to like family court. I mean, it, I've made things sound like I made progress financially, but in family court, I mean, I'm still there constantly. And it my my panic attacks and anxiety really flare up 
do to that. Yeah, I think <clears throat> when like our nervous system is like becomes so dysregulated in a situation like this, it's really hard even when you leave and you're out of it. Because while you're like removed from the situation, you're still dealing with like the dysregulation from like what you encountered in the abuse. Uh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, it's weird. The anxiety portion, like I used to be able to kind of pinpoint like, okay, I have a court date coming up. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I think the longer, like the post-separation has gone on, Mm -hmm. that's really when the panic attacks have started and they they ne don't necessarily occur only when there's court dates. It could just be triggered by other things mm -hmm. um, like a doctor appointment that I had the other day that I couldn't even walk into mm -hmm. because I just sat in the car and I'm like, I can't go in. I don't like it's going to happen to me. I know I'm going to have one. And why? I don't even know. Mm. But this is this is trauma. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I think that's what like is so hard and something that like just being surrounded by many trauma survivors is that like time doesn't stop for you and like time isn't sensitive to your abuse and so just because you know you go through something and it's hard and it doesn't even need to pertain particularly to abuse it could be grief death you know whatever it is um assault <clears throat> and time doesn't slow down for you though and so it's like it manifests in your daily life and you're sort of trying to play catch up with other people and life is very fast paced and it's really like learning how to be gentle and patient with yourself um, because like what you experienced is really hard stuff and your body wasn't made to experience that. Like your body wasn't, that's not like a, that wasn't like God's design for your life to experience that. However, it did happen. And so now it's like, it can be used for good and for his glory, but it also is really difficult to because it, it changes you in some ways it literally like changes like your brain and it dysregulates you and so it's like just patience and time and cultivating a safe space for yourself um but it's hard i have i am there as well right there with you that makes two of us <laughs> yeah what would you say was the climax of your abuse story? Um, I mean, I definitely feel like the climax was the day I left. Um, I, you know, I had left once before mm -hmm. when my son was about, I don't even know, maybe less than six months old. Mm -hmm. Um, but I went right back within, I would say less than a week. Mm. Um, you know, he had threatened to try to take him away and that he would take me to court. And I just, 
I sort of gave in and went back. The next time I left was years after that. Um, and now I had two kids. I had my son was three. My daughter was less than 30 days old. Mm. And um, that morning I was, you know, sexually assaulted with both kids there. And my son, who was three, he had tried to stop it. And he was thrown into like a wooden armoire chest that was in the room. And I I don't even know how, because like I was post-C-section, but I, you know, I took both the kids and I left and that was it. That was the last day. Sexual assault within marriage engagement is something that's like so untalked about and a lot of people think like oh well assault's just like you know in a dark alley and someone like just comes up oh my gosh you took the words out of yeah my mouth I'm sorry if I'm you know I'm trying to find the words to describe it and I am nervous I don't I obviously have never it's been six years um and this is really my first time talking about it and it's the part of this story I most don't want to talk about. It's actually something I just considered like leaving out. Mm. Um, But I feel like because it's the part I don't want to talk about the most, it's probably the part that needs to be heard the most. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like, you know, like you just, you literally took the words out of my mouth. I wasn't in a dark alley. I wasn't wearing a short skirt. I wasn't, you know, I didn't leave anywhere with a stranger I was literally in my own bed wearing an adult diaper postpartum and yeah, I, I don't even know. I don't even know. He regularly during like the relationship, um, would do things like not let me sleep all night and he would like if I had sex with him then I could sleep or he might take away my car keys and my phone and he would do this like if let's say I had like one of the kids and I was getting them ready to go out on like a I'm sorry I'm kind of backtracking but I just wanted to like kind of show what led up to that yeah yeah please um like if I were packing up the you know my son and I had a diaper bag sitting by the door and him in his car seat and you know like I just needed to grab one more thing to get out the door Mm -hmm. he would like put my phone and my keys in his back pocket and tell me like you know what you need to do to get it back like especially if he knew I had plans right um and it just, yeah, on this morning, um, I didn't want to. And there were many times over the years where I had been in this same situation, but the lines became very blurry um, because I would sometimes give in. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. I would sometimes be sleeping and wake up to it happening. Yeah. Um, and on this time, I said no, and he tried to anyway. Hmm. And your son <clears throat> witnessed it, is what you said? Yeah, we were in a very small apartment. Um, it was basically just the upstairs of a house, like two connecting rooms. Mm -hmm. And we were in one and he was in the other, but he came running in. Hmm. And then he <clears throat> put him in a chest, you said? Um, when my son ran into the room, he was saying, you know, get off of mom, get off of mom. And he kind of just swatted him across the room and like he flung into a, a wooden chest that was in the room. I see what you're saying. I, th I think like, <laughs> thank you for, for sharing this piece of your story. Um, you know, I think it is really powerful and I think it's honestly one of the most powerful sentences I think I've ever heard on this podcast is like you said like I wasn't wearing a short skirt I was wearing an adult diaper um and that's like such a graphic like it's such a strong word like such a strong sentence but it's like such a powerful statement because sexual assault does happen in relationships in marriages in engagements and you don't have to be in a dark alleyway to experience assault and you know coercion should not be a part of safe intimacy and no means no even if you're it doesn't matter how long you've known the person no means no and I think that your story is going to definitely impact women who are listening. And on the podcast, we have had some women mention sexual assault in their marriages. And it's actually been very prominent. Um, and it posed this question during the sexual assault season that I did of like, you know, where is this like stigma that we have or like this perception of sexual assault in like, you know, a lot of times it is placed on the woman of like, well, what was she wearing? Well, what was she doing to insinuate it? Or, I mean, even in Christian culture, like I know you said that, I think you said you believe in God, but it's like in Christian culture, a lot of like what I personally have experienced is like, well, um, don't like egg on a man or what you wear to make, to make him lust or to make him struggle with the sin of like, you know, lusting. And it's often put on the woman, like as if she did something to put herself in that situation. And I think that in a relationship, we think that there's no possible way to be assaulted because it's like, there's a relationship there. There's like a relationship built there, but it still happens and it's so untalked about. And then it, it goes untalked about and then it manifests in, you know, someone else's future partners and their intimacy because it's like really difficult to overcome something like that when it's like someone who should be safe and who should love you and who should listen to your yeses and your nos who doesn't 
um, that's, that's scary. And I think like, we have to take that. We have to, we have to stop putting this as like the, even just in the youth, I think, and like young girls is like, it doesn't, sexual assault doesn't just pertain to like, you know, a rape in the middle of an alleyway, like, and your no means no, no matter how long you've known that person, no matter the extent of your relationship or the depth of your relationship. And I just wish that, I don't know. I think that what you're explaining is extremely powerful and I'm like very, very moved by it and so sorry as well. Like it makes me feel ill listening to it, to be honest. Oh, I just, it's been six years. Like I really never talk about it. Yeah. And it it is like the one part of this, like I've really, I think just kind of tried to always like push under the rug. Like I just kind of group like, okay, he was obviously very verbally abusive and mentally and financially. And I really only like, I feel like in the last maybe year or two Mm -hmm. really started to think of it as a sexual assault. Yeah. I, I still struggle to really term it that. And I know that's just my own trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I kick myself like just for not leaving the first time it happened. And I don't know why, like why, why? But. Like you don't know why you uh, yourself or why you stayed, or what? Are you... Oh no, I I you know I'm kicking myself for staying. I don't know. Like how did I get there? How did I stay after it happened one time? You know, or however many times. It's just. I, I think we have to like truthfully like I think that we have to remove that question and stop asking that question as women because it's like you know even. I mean, advocating online, um, I'm going to use TikTok for an example. The prime question that a lot of people ask is like, why did you stay? Why didn't you leave? You knew that he was abusive or you he, he was a psychopath. Why did you stay? And it's like, why is the question always, why did she stay? And why is the question not, what made him act like that? What made him make those decisions and treat someone like that and act poorly. And I think like kind of changing that narrative of like, I think that's placed on us. To be honest, I think like that is like the stigma around domestic abuse. But I think like as a survivor, like not asking that question of like, I think you're asking the wrong question. It's not like, why did I stay? Um, Why did I allow that? Why didn't I walk away? But like, what made somebody treat me the way that they did? What, what made that person like, can, to be a person who, who inflicts abuse like that on somebody, like what possibly could make somebody act like that? And I think like changing that narrative of like, it actually has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with them. And right. Right. I think we were missing the mark here, not just you, but like I, he just, for myself, I've asked that question. I've seen so many others ask that question specifically online. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, I think we're asking like the wrong question. I agree. 
Yeah, yeah. no, I agree. But it's hard. It, it's hard, especially when you see what you see now, you know, and you're like out of it and you want to shake yourself. Like if you could go back in time and be like, don't like, you know, like those like scary movies where like, don't go through the doors. Like, don't, yeah, don't oh do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, mind you, I have to see this person. It's been six years. Um, you know, whenever, when I thought about leaving, you know, he would say to me, like, I will make you wish you were dead. Like, I will ruin your life. I will take your children away from you. Like, you'll be lucky if you see your kids through a little glass, plexiglass, you know, window. Um, And he has followed through on all of these threats. And it's six years later. And this month alone, I'll have three family court appearances, but I usually have two a month. Um, and I sit in a little room with bright lights and no windows across a little table from him. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, it doesn't end, unfortunately, like when you share children and you are in a situation like this it's so hard to heal from it because the body is constantly like, it's just so frequent that I have to face this person. Yeah. Yeah. I very much resonate with that statement. Um, It doesn't just end when you leave. Um, What? So I, you explained that you left after that assault Um, can you explain to me the challenges that you faced in the aftermath of abuse? I think the hardest part, like the biggest challenge was constantly worrying about the safety of my children. Like they were so young. They're still so young, but six years ago, they were even younger. Um, And I just, I mean, I constantly worried because originally the court said they had to go every other weekend for unsupervised visits. And I used to just, I mean, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was like, I'm being complicit in basically sending my kids into the burning building. Let alone that I had to meet him in a parking lot to exchange them each time. Um, And those are challenges like, probably the first ones that come to my mind but the other ones are that I feel like the relationship it took so much from me but it just kept taking even after because I feel like I just have like family members and friends that were aware of the torture and were aware of the continued torture through the use of the legal system and it's just hard to believe like family members and friends and be aware of this and not really step in and assist or check in. And I feel like it's just continued to take from me because I've had to, you know, set boundaries with people that like, otherwise I would love. But once you're going through this, I feel like you really notice the people who show up for you. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. 
1000%. I have lost so many friends, <laughs> so many friends coming out of abuse. I mean, whether it's people who side with the abuser or people who yeah. silence speaks volumes. Silence. That's the part. Like I have, when I tell you, I have like so many people that, you know, I used to be so close with, they live within driving distance and they are aware of what has gone on and what's going on. And they send me, you know, thoughts and prayers. And what's even more incredible to me is like the angels that have honestly come into my life, strangers, Mm -hmm. friends that I've made that live an hour away from me that will drive to my house at five in the morning to watch my kids and get them to school so that I can keep a job. Mom. You know, friends that show up randomly with dinner just because they, they know I need, I need it that day. Wow. And then you have like people that you really always thought you'd be able to count on and they're just kind of not there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like that's something that I think is really helpful for people who are listening, who are like family members or friends of people who are abused. Is like, if you come across somebody who is abused or who has gone through it and is in the aftermath of abuse, it really is like showing up for them in ways where it's like, can I like take your kids to the park? Can I make you a meal? Can I go to the grocery store and get you X, Y, Z or. Oh my gosh. Yes. And just showing up in those like minimal ways. Minimal, Huge. so minimal. The littlest things honestly just make me cry. Like when I have people around me, like that just will do little things. Yeah. I literally could just cry. Right. Yeah. I, and it's hard because it's like, in some ways, I feel like I, I don't know how you feel, but like I'm grateful that I've been able to see who my true friends are, but I'm also really bummed and sad by it because. I mean, people who you thought would be in your life forever. Um, and then mm-hmm. when something really hard happens like this, it makes people really uneasy and uncomfortable. And then they yeah. just back away. And, yep. that's- and the- yeah, that's where I definitely feel like that's been one of the biggest challenges for me is like, and like you just said, it's like really good to see who your, you know, close friends are, but it just feels like another thing the relationship has taken from me. Right. Like, I feel like I shouldn't be faced with this. Right. Yeah. But I think in some ways it also has given something to you because it's like, those aren't, those aren't people that you want in your circle anyways. I a hundred percent agree. It's just, I mean, the whole thing has just changed me as a person. It's changed my whole life, my whole outlook. Mm. and yeah I think I especially think like setting boundaries with family too it's probably the hardest mm. but um in what ways have yeah. you set boundaries with your family like what does that look like I guess just the same way that I've done with you know friends or anyone that I feel like is aware that this is going on mm-hmm. and isn't you know, really doing what they can to help the children or to help me, like, or just to offer like real support. I've just, I guess I'd say I've stopped showing up, Mm. you know, even if there's holiday things that go on or I just, I sort of like protect my own peace. 
Mm. more. Yeah. 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 I think there's also a lot of, I think that's why it's important to have like a community around you, or even if it's just a couple of people who have experienced abuse though, because um, there's a whole community of like survivors and people aren't really going to understand what they can't understand. <laughs> like that sounds pretty like, like I odd. know, no, I know, but yeah. it's like the amount of times I've heard families say to me, like, just get over it. Or like, just, it's just, you got to just let it go. It's like, yeah. Right. Or even with the family court stuff, I honestly feel like people that have never been there really can't even fathom the way it works or how frustrating and dehumanizing it is. It's just, oh, I, I, I really feel like that. I, I do feel like you're right. Like they just can't understand what they don't know. Mm-hmm. But I still feel like if I had someone in my inner circle that was a single parent with two very young kids and I just knew they had X amount of court appearances a month and were the sole provider, I just think I'd have to step in and do something, something little. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I agree with that statement. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's too much to expect from community either. And so I think that unfortunately there's just a lot of selfish people who don't like who want to do the bare minimum, um, which is hard because you need more than bare minimum right now in your life. Um, in the aftermath of abuse. Um, I'm curious, what is something that you can do now that you couldn't do then? I know that like you're still in the aftermath of abuse and in the custody and, I get it. Like I'm literally right there with you and it is brutal. Like it is really, really brutal. And having to try to heal from something while also being reminded of it every time you have to like send your kids that way and like worry about them because like you said, you're literally sending them to into a burning building and you're like hoping that they don't well, get lit on fire. I have to tell you that that was the original plan. That was like the original um, agreement, but I would say about two years ago, they decided to do a forensic evaluation mm-hmm. and it came back not in his, you know, it was really unfavorable to him. Mm. Uh, following that report, we didn't even, we had a trial that was set and we didn't even get to the trial because he threatened the forensic evaluator on his personal cell phone. He threatened the judge via her email, the attorney for the children, and um, they requested that he do like a real psychiatric evaluation, Mm -hmm. which he then did. Mm -hmm. And when that report came back, he threatened that evaluator. (laughs) And following all of this, they suspended his visits with the kids to be supervised. Okay. So what had been happening to me for four years, suddenly it happened to four men within the uh, courthouse. Mm. And that was the outcome. So for the last two years, 
he's had the ability to see them supervised and the trial is ending him seeing them in a supervised setting and he has refused to see them. Yeah. So now he, that has been in place for about 17 months and he is refusing to do it, but we continue to go to court at least once a month um, to conference because the trial was pending. Uh-huh. I don't know what it has to do with it, but they said we have to, you know, we like meet where they say, did he have the visits yet? Did he not? That is just so, yeah. like bizarre to me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, is yeah. it enough for them? Yeah. I, just, I cannot understand the system. And it's like, they're like, they'll just like throw a bone for an abuser and be like, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you you don't like want to see your children because it's supervised, um, and it's really just about power and control. But like, let's just like see if you like show up. Let's just check in. It's like check in for like that. Just makes me so frustrated because it's like you're literally trying to move on with your life, and then you have to literally go to these court hearings when he's clearly like yeah. at the core of it, not interested in the children. Otherwise, he would get over his own pride, yeah. and narcissism, and. <laughs> Like mm-hmm. he has children, you yeah. know. I mean, you're yeah. like, you know. <laughs> I it's. I mean, I went yesterday. We had a court date, um, and they were saying, you know, we you know we really want to get like the trial scheduled. Has he seen the kids yet? And he's there, and he continues to say like, no, and I won't. I'm not seeing them in that setting. And then we they say, okay, well, let's see. Them. We'll be back again in a month and see where we're at. And that's kind of how it goes. Um, it's wild, all of it. Yeah, it's wild, but not surprising because I just. But right, and that's but when you said, uh, I think you were saying that, um, like, what can I do now that I couldn't do? But you had mentioned like about sending them to visits, and I just I had forgotten to mention like that part has changed. Right. right. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, I'm glad because it. It is a good thing. It's adding value to your case, but it's stupid that you have to revisit it so often. I agree. <laughs> yeah, no other word for it other than it's just stupid. <laughs> yeah, and I obviously I'm just a ball of anxiety, and then I'm running out of work, and I'm paying for childcare, and you know he doesn't assist financially for equally as long as he hasn't seen them. Um, so yeah, it's all of this is just like the next, when you're dealing with a person like this, I just feel like it doesn't end. It shifts. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I would agree with that statement. Is there something that you feel like you can do now that you couldn't do then? Well, for one, I can sleep. Mm. Um, I know it sounds like something really silly, but mm. he would just constantly keep me awake, like all of those years. Like he would just, it's wild. Like he, it was like every game, like every night, like I knew there was going to be this like game. Mm. Um, it's like, <laughs> I, I just, he would yell or he would like mutter 
just like really mean, crazy things, you know, and I, like I was saying earlier, like he would tell me that, you know, he would stop and let me sleep if I would just have sex. Sometimes I would give in and just have sex so that I could sleep. And then he would like laugh Mm. and still not let me sleep. Mm. And he would make me like recite the definition of the word worthless and like that I'm worthless and that the spelling of it, it just, in hindsight, like it had gotten so far, it really sounds so crazy, but it had gotten, it had just spiraled so far. And just now I think I get to sleep. Mm. I don't have this going on. It seems like something so little, but it's been the biggest thing that I can do now that I couldn't do then. It's so interesting. Like you're not the first person who on the podcast has talked about this, where like the person like would kind of make them sleep deprived or they would like keep them up at night or like kind of have these like episodes at night. I've never heard of that before, but like I've heard multiple people talk about this on the podcast like that. Really? Yeah, that they I ad- feel crazy like even talking about it because it sounds no. so silly, no. but it's like it was so intentional and it was so law like it was the one constant thing I knew he would do. Like he was really unpredictable, but this was like a sure thing. And like if sometimes what he would do is like he would wake up the kids and then he would laugh and be like, Now you really have to get up. That's literally, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's It feels crazy. And like, like the level it got to, it just, it's crazy. But I, I mean, that surprises me that other people have said this to you. Oh, yeah, they have. I'm trying to remember. Oh, that's what it is. It's um episode season three. It was um Sarah. Uh, it's called um the Tinder Tales. Um you have to listen to it. She's, I will. Yeah. Um, her story is really crazy. He was like a computer genius and he basically had been watching and stalking her for like X amount. I mean, it's crazy. He's still to this day. He literally harasses me like and creates accounts like <laughs> once a week. And he like, he harasses your laugh when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, nothing surprises me. I'm just like, yeah I'm just like whatever uh um but yeah but she talks about that um how he would like try to keep her awake and there's other people who've talked about that how they might would or wouldn't let them sleep um they become sleep deprived because they're feel like they're going crazy and they need to sleep um very interesting it's weird <laughs> it's not a silly thing at all to say like I can do this is what I can do um, I've, I think that's like one of my favorite questions, uh, is just because I'm like, it, you wouldn't think that like when you go through something like abuse, it's like, there are things that you couldn't do in that relationship that you can do now that for other people would be like just basic, normal necessities and things that they do. But for us, it's like something that I'm- we're going to find gratitude for. I'm also grateful I can leave dirty dishes in the sink and not be yelled at. I'm grateful I can get a paycheck from my job and know where it's going. Um, 
lots of like little things. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I, I remember one time, um, but I, I couldn't wear beanies in my relationship, which is like so weird. Um, <laughs> so Sorry, weird. but yeah, it's, it's so stupid, but he'd always like make comments about the size, the shape of my head. Um, and like, I would feel really insecure. And I remember the first time that I, it was winter time. I had fled him and I went to the store and I saw this beanie and I tried it on. And then I immediately thought, oh, I can't get that because it makes my head look weird. And my friend looked at me and she goes, you're what? And she was like, my head, my head looks weird. And she's like, your head doesn't look weird. And I'm like, wait, I can wear this. And so I remember I bought it and I wore it all winter long. And now I, I mean, I wear beanies all the time. Um, <laughs> Very good. <laughs> it's like something so silly you know it's like I can wear beanies now um or you can like leave dishes in the sink but it's like those are things you couldn't do that you can do now and I think there's always things that come up where you're like I can do this now and like no one's he he doesn't have like control over me anymore you know yeah absolutely but <laughs> yeah it's, it's still kind of crazy when you think about it uh, it is for sure. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what, what are your visions and dreams now moving forward? Like what does life look like for you right now? And like, I guess, yeah. What's What are your dreams and visions? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's taken me all this time, like six years to really come to terms with the things he did, you know, I don't even know that I'm fully there yet. And remaining in family court and like being under the, the constant pressure that family court brings and just like not having a resolution, the feeling it gives you in your stomach, like just that, that pit and all the anxiety. It's, it's hard to like, answer a question like what are my you know what's my hopes and dreams I mean I've come a long way like I you know like I said my one of my dreams was to go to nursing school and to graduate and to buy a house and in some ways I've you know I did you know write down some two-year goals five-year goals and I, I was like really consistent with trying to meet them and create this like better life and in some ways I have, but I mean, my biggest dream would be to get out of family court, to not have it constantly looming over me and to just get away from it. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I feel like so inspired by people, you know, I feel like I've been very isolated and kind of kept all this in. And I've made relationships with people, you know, you just following your story and like how brave you are, just kind of putting it out there and sharing it and being on the receiving end of it. It's been so helpful. Like just when I'm leaving, having a bad day or leaving, you know, in, being stuck in this situation, kind of like just hearing there's someone else out there that's going through it. I don't know. It's really helped me. And I guess I feel like if I can share this story and help one person, I feel good about that. 
And I'm eager to like have your story, your story airing because it's just really beautiful. Like after, uh, you know, this is the fifth season now and I'll always get those messages that are like, you know, Hey, I listened to so-and-so's episode and I realized that there's a similarity there. And I, I think I'm being abused and I left and now I'm out for a year, you know, like this is, you know, it's, we're kind of coming on two years of what was her name. Um, and it's always like everyone, everyone's episode, like is so different, but like their story, but someone always like without a doubt will reach out and be like, Hey, I listened to Kylie's episode and, you know, left my relationship or, you know, my husband has put himself in therapy because he realized he's abusive and he we're separated now and he's in, in therapy, you know, or whatever. It's just crazy. The kind of things that I hear. And so I'm excited for your story to air because it is going to help pe- people. And I think that's one of the reasons that I keep doing what was her name is because it does feel like that. You're like, did this just, this is just like this really terrible thing that happened to me. And now it's just over. And like, my story, like nobody, nobody knows about it. You're not just going to like walk up to someone on the street and be like, Hey, tell me about how you were abused and sexually assaulted. Like that doesn't, those conversations don't just come up naturally, but to have your story in a place and to hold it here in this space where other survivors or social workers or whoever come to this space and listen to these stories and pass them along. It's kind of like really this beautiful thing because it's like your story wasn't for nothing and it is going to impact people and they're going to find your story here and resonate and relate to it. And you're helping somebody out of their own situation or even to provide closure for things that they may think are crazy or unique to themselves that have happened to somebody else. You know, I definitely feel like I've carried like just so much guilt, I guess, like shame. I don't know. It's hard like why I don't speak about it or just, I don't know. I, I also think there's this like little part that wants to protect him, which I spent a really long time doing mm-hmm. a decade really. And the only people that really benefit from me never speaking about it are him obviously. And Secondly, his mother, you know, who's aware of most of it and enabled most of it. And I mean, I think it's just people that inflict this on other people really thrive in the silence of it. Mm. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I think it's really brave though, like you coming forward and speaking about it. And like, I know there's areas of your story that you're like, I'd rather not speak about or people to know, uh, but it's really beautiful and really, really powerful. And I'm super grateful that you're here and willing to speak about it. Alrighty guys. Thanks uh, so much for coming on and listening to this episode. Uh, I know that each episode is different uh and unique to themselves but also can be really overwhelming I think even you know as survivors come forward and share their stories but as we're listening to them as well so I just want to encourage you as maybe a survivor uh 
to just make sure to do some good self-care, drink ice water. Me and Tess were just talking about this. Drink some ice water and like, I don't know, do what you need to do to just make sure that you regulate yourself and are able to self-soothe because I think that sometimes listening to these episodes, while we may not even realize it, can manifest in our daily lives. Just being aware of that um, and being gentle with yourself. Uh, Thank you for coming on and for listening to Tess's story today. Um, We really couldn't do this without the people who are listening here in this space. Um, So thank you again. Um, Tune in next week for the next episode on season five. Thanks, guys.